Uh, no. I, okay. Th- that's the short version of, of how I am. <laughs> but uh, I was wanting to see if your answer would be similar to what I gave him. So what say you? No. <laughs> Welcome back to Reason Together, the podcast for Christians who think about stuff. I'm your host, Daniel Fox, here with my great friend, Thomas Belzamo, and uh, glad that you are joining the conversation today and, uh, and hope that it will be a help. If it's, uh, we're, we're at a point now, about five years in, where you've got plenty of episodes, about 160 episodes. You can just kind of randomly peruse and see what uh, you might enjoy and, 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 you know, try those clickbaity titles and <laughs> see what you think might 165. entertain you. 165. All right. Okay. 165 episodes. And we never use clickbaity titles just for the <laughs> record. Um, <laughs> we would never do such a thing like that as to try and make a title catchy. <laughs> that, would be, I, that would be worldly. And uh, I want to I I want to thank our listeners for uh, for listening and for tuning in. And I'm glad that, uh, you know, you're busy, you work hard, and I'm glad that we could be a part of your day that as you're driving along and uh, and working and doing what you do, you allow us to provide some substantive conversation. If you want to give us some feedback, it's reason together podcast at gmail dot com. Just uh, email us your thoughts at reasontogetherpodcast at gmail.com. And we'd also like to thank our patrons over at patreon.com slash reasontogether. Those are the folks that generously support this podcast and make it so that we can pay editors um, who help us with things and uh, and keep uh, keep this boat afloat. So thank you to our patrons for their generous support. If you'd like to become one, head over to patreon.com slash reason together, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash reason together. All right. I've got a couple things that I wanted to bring up today, but first, uh, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Um, Good. Yeah. Same old crazy busy. Yeah. Same old crazy busy. <laughs> um, yeah. That's, it's, I, I almost hate saying what I've been up to because it's the same stuff all the time. <laughs> so same, uh, same routine. Okay. How about you? Um, I'm doing doing well. Um, well, little uh, I get overwhelmed, <laughs> a lot going on, but uh, maybe some of our listeners can uh, relate. Um, so I, there's a couple things I want to uh, to throw at you. I'm not sure what order, but you know, I, I guess first I'll I'll just kind of throw this out. Maybe it'll be a help to our listeners. I've asked over time. Um, I, I think I've asked even on previous episodes. Recently, I asked you about the importance of reading. But uh, even way back when, we may have been asking about how to read a book. I've asked, you know, a mentor, how do you read a book? Um, And I just came across an article and I thought, now there we go. There's a helpful article on how to read a book. Uh, You know, not, is there a way to actually approach a book and for for maximum effectiveness? And uh, this article was entitled, let me pull up the, uh, what the uh, title was here real quick. Um, it's on SDR's podcast, which is Stand to Reason with Greg Kokel. And he wrote um, this article called um, Reading Less, More, and Twice as Fast. <laughs> and uh, so he actually goes through a uh, recommendation on, uh, he has a four-step process of basically uh, 
preview, review, unless I'm mixing those two, review, preview, view, and overview, or something like that, uh, where where you're kind of you're 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 going through it actually multiple times, but in, initially you're just sort of scanning it, kind of getting the structure, um, mm-hmm. and then you're reading. You know, you're getting more into the details as far as okay, here's the actual thought. Then you're going back and you're summarizing, and just the way that that you know he's recommending doing it. He he says you actually feels like it it may be more enjoyable, maybe quicker than reading. Start on page one and read through page two forty. And in the process, you comprehend and retain a lot more and, and master, really come more to a mastery of that material than just picking up the page, reading so many pages, and when you get back to it, you get back to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought it's a, it was a, uh, a good article, and I want to share that in our show notes uh, today. Okay, will do. Yeah. Sounds interesting. I can't wait to read it. Yeah. Now, the, the other thing I wanted to mention to you um, is... And it really is going to tie into a question here. I know you mentioned a couple other ones, but I want to I want to throw this out here um, because I, I I think there actually is a legitimate connection here. But I have to um, I have to find the humor in 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 what these people do, and I not that I want to mock and degrade and things like that. But I was reading this article oh maybe a week ago, week and a half ago. <laughs> And talking about the people who are protesting for climate on behalf of climate change, you know, and of course, we know that that whole that the terminology is silly climate change and and the and the approach to it, the non scientific, whatever. Um, But but what jumped out to me and I so I took a screenshot of this um, said one person glued his head to the painting. Yeah, <laughs> glued his head to the painting. It gets better as the other man poured tomato soup over his head. Now I don't know if that means like a man's just standing there and goes goosh and pours tomato <laughs> soup over his head. I think I kind of took it more to mean that he poured it over the head of the man who had just glued himself to the painting. And I'm like, you no. know, there's definitely like there's definitely a totem pole here because I mean, how do you decide? who gets their head glued to a painting and who gets the joy of splashing the tomato soup over the other guy's head. I mean, you know, one, you're sacrificing a lot more, <laughs> you know, you're standing sure. there, you're lecturing I mean, people. that would, that would require <laughs> enough brain cells to think in advance of how you're going to do this. Um, yeah. Well, that, how did they come and, to that decision? You said it, you said at the beginning though, that, you know, your intent is not to mock and, and, and that's fair. Uh, I, that's admirable. But don't you think some things <laughs> that's admirable? <laughs> don't you think some things should be mocked? Yes. Is, I, is there, isn't there a place for that? I was just telling someone recently there is there is a biblical example of mocking, um, specifically where Elijah and the prophets <laughs> yes. of Baal. Uh, you know, he lets them go on for a while. They're jumping on the altar, cutting themselves and bleeding, calling out to their God. And finally, he just starts to make fun of them. And he, it wasn't being diplomatic. It was saying, oh, God, cry a little louder. Maybe, maybe he's sleeping. Uh, you know, he was <laughs> making, he's on vacation. And, yeah, he's making an absolute joke out of what they were doing. Now, mm-hmm. I think the thing you have to remember is that he wasn't necessarily mocking uh, all pagan worshipers per se, but the evil false teachers, you know. In this case, though, I guess I, I'd say there's probably an argument for for mocking um, 
the 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 uh, the approach at least. Yeah. You know, I mean, we can we can argue the stance like, OK, is there really an issue of climate change? How do we address that? Blah, blah, blah. But I just it's amazing to me yeah. now. Another I saw another article and it's not quite as hilarious, but it's I don't know what the fetish is with glue. But, you know, like I glue my yeah. hand to the wall. Well, I've I guess that means that people are like, oh, my goodness, look, that person just glued himself to a wall. And so then they have to do something about it. And while they're yeah. doing something about it, they sort of have a captive audience, although they're the real captives. And then they can start spouting their speech about, you know, stop drilling for oil and blah, blah, blah. Um, well, did you and I'll have to see if I can look up the article, but there was an instance and this has been a thing that's been happening more than once recently, there was a group of climate protesters, uh, and I think they were at some sort of car exhibition, uh, something where they were showing like the latest model vehicle and something. Okay. And, and I, I'm, I, I it take probably, it it wasn't, I, mean, I take it it wasn't an electric, electric vehicle. Right. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> That's my guess. But they go and they sit down on the floor, and they glue their hands to the floor. If I remember <laughs> the story right. Yeah. And then after quite a bit of time goes by, they need to go to the bathroom and they're asking the staff at this place. I don't know if it was a museum, an expo center. I have no idea what it yeah, was, yeah. you know, if they could provide them with some means of going to the bathroom. And I don't remember how the story resolved, but they were being mocked relentlessly online for, you know, well, you maybe you should have thought of that before gluing your hand to a floor. <laughs> yeah, right. Just, I just, oh my goodness. That's why I say, you know, there are certain times I think maybe some things just ought to be mocked. Um, right. I don't, I don't know. I, yeah. It, the, but it, it certainly is funny to me. But there, one other, let's see, observation. Oh, what is the thing, too? It said uh, in one article, it says, or one person glued his head to the painting as the other man poured tomato soup over his head. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh my goodness okay so anyway so he pours tomato soup over his head well then i read in this other article it says a pair of vandals threw tomato soup uh on one of the art uh, art world's most celebrated masterpieces uh what's the issue with tomato soup is it that it's like the most i mean why not stains. clam chowder oh stains because yeah, probably it, they want to stain okay. it I, I guess. Okay. okay. I, I think there was another instance in which they tried this. It, I forget. Maybe it was the Mona Lisa. I don't recall. But what they didn't know is that they actually have these things protected behind a layer of plexiglass, some sort of expensive plexiglass. Okay. Okay. Um, and 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 now that they know these climate activists are doing this, um, museums are getting a little more diligent about protecting against you know yeah yeah soup soup incidents right. So then you so then you walk up and the person starts saying, "How do you feel when you see something beautiful and priceless apparently being destroyed before your eyes? Um, do you feel outraged? <laughs> Good, and you know, and maybe somebody standing there going, "Your head's glued to a painting, <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, well, so maybe you're asking where I'm going with it. Okay, maybe um, the same place I'm going with it. Let's see. Okay, Go ahead. Where, where were you? What's your thought on it? Well, I, you know, if it's the same, I don't want to steal your thunder, but you know, since you asked, my thought is basically that you made a good comparison with Elijah and the prophets of Baal and climate activists because, mm. and I think the, I think that the argument is reasonable and true that in the absence of the worship of the true God, 
people will replace it with the worship of a false god. Hmm. Um, they, they just will naturally do that. And what do people worship in our generation? Uh, well, they worship self. That's the obvious one. But what are we seeing people worship now? They're worshiping two big things. They're worshiping climate and they're worshiping politics. So, so for many mm-hmm. people in the absence of true religion, they're worshiping the democratic party mm-hmm. and everything else is false. And they have unsubstantiated full belief and trust in the democratic party. Others will say the same thing about, uh, climate <clears throat> that they're worshiping climate, this thing that can't respond to them, that can't, uh, in right. a sense, even notice them. It's, it's not a coherent object, it's nature, right? And they treat it, they speak of it as if it's something that knows it's being allegedly defiled by humankind. Hmm. Um, and, and, and they're essentially worshiping humanity or not, not humanity. They're worshiping climate. They're worshiping the natural world. It's a Romans chapter one type scenario. Interesting. Do you think it's nihilistic though at the same time? I mean, like, uh, what do you mean by nihilistic? I guess I was thinking sort of self-worshipping and, um, and um, I don't know, I, maybe I'm mis, mis, uh, thinking nihilism there, but um, is it kind of a worship of self as much as it is? Or are they literally worshipping something outside of themselves, like the climate? I, th- I think there's some crossover in that Venn diagram. Um, you mm-hmm. know, the, the worship okay. of something... The worship of something other than God does eventually come back to the worship of self and its own desires. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I think that there's some correlation there. But, okay. Yeah. That's so. interesting. That's a that's a good uh, good uh, parallel there. I think. Now, honestly, I was going to go somewhere different with it. I was going to say, okay, you glue yourself to a floor or to a painting or to a wall or whatever. Okay, whatever the cause that you're doing that for, what's the rationale? I mean, in their minds, is there any hope that gluing themselves to a wall will make a difference? Well, I, I, I think the point is that um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm gaining attention. I'm attracting sure. an audience. I'm, um, I'm creating an avenue by which to communicate yeah. um, a looming destruction on people and to warn them. Okay. Yeah. So is there any parallel here between their struggle to communicate what they feel is a life-saving message and our effort to find the most effective way to alert people to their need of God and to create a moment of hearing? Aren't we struggling with that on a regular basis to say, how do I connect with people? How do I get their ear? How can I create a platform to communicate a life-saving message? That's exactly what they're struggling with. And yes, they come at it at a very odd and weird way. But don't you feel like sometimes Christians find awkward ways to try to mm-hmm. create a platform by which to share their life-saving message? So oh, yeah. are, are our struggles similar in that way, in that we're both trying to create, um, we're, try, we're both trying to grab attention for a life-saving message, and sometimes we, we kind of hit on awkward ways. Do you think there's a parallel there? Yeah. I suppose there could be, um, yeah, I suppose there could be. And, and boy, this is a, there's so many different ways my mind is going right now with this because, (laughs) you know, we think, well, we're Baptists. We don't ever do anything like that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I could, I have a, I I have a list 
in my head of strange things I have seen churches do mm-hmm. and participate in in the name of getting the gospel out. Mm-hmm. And some of them are frankly kooky. And, and the thing is, you know, you don't have to try to help the truth look kooky to the world. It's already kooky to them. They already don't get it and they already think it's ridiculous. Um, we're not helping things by doing the Baptist equivalent of a climate change activist gluing their head to a wall and pouring soup on themselves. Um, you know, but granted, are we doing anything quite like that? No, no. But I think there's a similar mindset in which you grow frustrated that what you're saying seems to be falling on what you perceive to be deaf ears. Right. So you take matters beyond what's been instructed you and you become an extremist in a, in, in a certain sense of the word. Mm. Um, and you use fleshly means, you use uh, selfish means, you use radical means uh, to, to garner attention. Uh, I think, I think, yeah, there is a correlation there, there are maybe not correlation. There's a similarity. That's similarity. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Now, and it's interesting. It strikes me as you're talking there and thinking about this is that they don't have, and, and by that, I mean a climate change activist who's gluing himself to a painting. He does not have uh, any foundation uh, by which to believe that his word, like, like the, the expression of his supposed truth um, is going to have an effect. Um, and what I'm saying is that as a Christian, we can say, you know, I can, I can communicate with people. Um, I can share the word of God and trust the Holy Spirit to take that seed, work on the heart and mind of the individual, that truth, truth is manifesting. Truth is light. Mm -hmm. Truth will expose. But to them, I don't think they really have that assurance. And so they have to go through especially corny ways of, uh, of gaining that attention and that audience, um, because that's the only way people are going to hear is by doing the extreme to get their attention. Right. Right. And I suppose maybe this is sort of a side note to what you're saying, but you know, we often do try to encourage ourselves that when we speak the gospel to others, you know, that since we're speaking the truth, we trust the Holy spirit that will have some sort of effect, uh, on them. Um, the only effect we tend to often give credence to is the effect of it convicting them and bringing about repentance and faith. There is another effect preaching the gospel does have on the sinner's ear that we often don't give much credence to, and that is the matter of increasing their judgment before God, if I could mm-hmm. say it that yes, way. Yes, that's true. Yes, right. And, you know, when you give the gospel to someone that is going to utterly disbelieve what you say, you are now making them, you know, I don't know, hundredfold, thousandfold, more responsible before God when they stand before him in judgment for every opportunity they heard the gospel and, and rejected it and denied it. So we have to keep both of those things in the back of our mind when we give the gospel. In fact, if we take any of the the parables to be at least somewhat indicative of how the gospel will be received in this world, the vast majority of times you give the gospel to people, what you're doing is making them more responsible before God on the judgment day. You're giving them more to answer for. Mm-hmm. Um, not saying you're doing that with any malice, but you just have to understand what's what's taking place when you do that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not to detract you from doing it. 
No, not at all. No, that's at that's all. a consequence of uh, of rejection every time they see more light. Yeah, it's just we have to acknowledge that as much as that seems weird, that is a good result. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that's hard. That's hard to swallow. But the fact that a sinner who utterly rejects Christ is going to stand before God in judgment and be responsible for for everything, um, is God glorified in that result? Well, yes. Sure. Yep. Yes, he mm-hmm. is. And I think too often we give the gospel and people reject it, and then we're disheartened and we're disappointed and dejected and demoralized. And we think this is never mm-hmm. going to work. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to see anyone born again. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to get used to the thought that that no thank you, I'm all set response does bring God glory in a certain sense. It may not be the sense that we wish, but it does bring God glory. Yeah, and just going back to the sim- simplistic, you know, statement, I guess, or understanding that you've you've done your job. God didn't ask you to convert people; uh, He asked you to, you know, share the gospel. Yes, make right. disciples, but there is a part of that that is the Holy Spirit and that person's choice. And so, yes. it's not like, oh, you failed; you didn't do your job. Well, n- no, if you you uh, shared the gospel, you know what I mean. Yeah. You were doing yeah. okay. Um, well, speaking of, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, speaking of failures, <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Uh, something that I was saying in the last episode, someone misheard, and it was probably because of my failure to enunciate uh, <laughs> yes, okay. my words very well. Uh, we talked in the last episode about theodicy. Theodicy would be like T H E O D I C Y. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> And we had one of our patrons, uh, I, I suppose uh, this is kind of funny, but he says, at first I kept thinking Pastor Belzama was saying the Odyssey. I was like, how does that fit in? <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny. In, the Odyssey. Yeah, you insert that and you're like, what? What is he talking yeah. about? Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, that's funny. Yeah. But we had some feedback, feedback on uh, on that episode as well that I thought was interesting. That's perhaps mm-hmm. worth addressing. Okay. Um, and this is from our patron message board. Um, again, if you haven't joined as a patron, you can do that at patreon.com slash reason together, and you can contribute into the conversation with these folks here. Um, anyway, this is from, uh, Omar, who I believe asked the question about theodicy, correct? I believe so. Um, Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, it it yeah, that's that's correct. He says, thank you for dealing with my question and recognizing its complexities. I appreciate the direction of your conversation, taking it to more of a root level question. I guess another foundational assumption that affects how we think about this is the role of God in his prophecy. When God prophesies an event, is it passive, active, or an educated guess? Let me explain using the example of the crucifixion, which was prophesied in great detail hundreds of years before it came to pass. Um, Now, this is actually something that came up in the episode. Um, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm, I actually brought up about prophecy concerning the crucifixion being very detailed and specific. Um, And the question that we were addressing was, does God ever ordain that which he forbids? And in the example of the crucifixion, it was that he had ordained this to take place, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. This was by the determinate counsel of God. The details were all prophesied um, in advance. And yet it was the circumstance surrounding mankind murdering an innocent um, and trying him unjustly and so on. Um, So he goes further with this, uh, dealing with prophecy. 
Uh, he says, number one, <clears throat> I think we could toss out the third option. The third option being an educated guess. Um, yeah, God taking an educated guess. Uh, I think we could toss out that third option that says that God knows humanity really well and is so, so really good at predicting what they will do in a certain circumstance. For example, God was pretty sure that the religious leaders would want to offer a reward for betraying Jesus and knowing Judas's personality. God knew this would be an offer he couldn't refuse. But this is generally associated with open theism, and I don't think any conservatives would subscribe to this. Okay, so the, the view of prophecy regarding the crucifixion was that God just took an educated guess because he knew man so well that not a bone of his would be broken, that he would be, be betrayed for a price of, of 30 pieces of silver that, uh, uh, and, and so on. And I'm trying yeah, to think. I, yeah you'd have to say, yeah, that's pretty apparently a skeptical approach of an unbeliever to explaining scripture. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, I, well, I, I'm fairly certain I've heard preachers actually say similar things to this. Um, really? Yeah, wow. it's it's sort of like a like a halls of time kind of view sort of thing, in which God, you know, looks ahead and knows man so well he can essentially predict what man is going to do, but man is ultimately, uh, you know, acting of his own accord. <clears throat> um, yeah, I, I see it as different. I think that maybe that's covered with number two in what he's going to say. But go ahead. Okay, perhaps you're right about that. Uh, number two, he says, did God make these prophecies passively concerning he, because he knows the future and knew what is going to happen? You're correct. Yeah, that is more of a halls of time view there. Mm -hmm. He says, since God knows the future, it's like he's re-watching a movie he's seen before. He's able to prophesy what's going to happen because he's already watched it unfold. <clears throat> then he foretells the future. Then thus, when he foretells the future, it's like when I watch an old movie with a friend who's not seen it before, and I impress him with my ability to predict what's going to happen. The prophecies are, quote, spoilers. Uh, that's an interesting uh, way to look at it, a good illustration. And, yeah, an interesting illustration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, though I don't know that I would subscribe entirely to that view of prophecy, and, and, and he's not. He's just explaining it uh, mm -hmm. here. <clears throat> Number three... Uh, third view of prophecy, or does God's does God prophesy events and then actively bring them to pass? In Isaiah fifty four or Isaiah forty six, sorry, I'm looking at this from far away here. In Isaiah forty six, God confronts Israel with their unbelief and challenges them to compare Him to the idols who were powerless to accomplish anything. God distinguished Himself from idols with the fact that He declares the future and causes it to come to pass. Isaiah 46, 5 through 11. Uh, and then I'll read that to you here. It says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me <clears throat> uh, that we may be like? Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Yea, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. <clears throat> and uh, thus endeth the comment uh, there from Omar. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's interesting. Three particular views of mm -hmm. prophecy. And I suppose there could be additional views that other people right. have True. that may True. combine some elements of these. Um, but yeah, there's uh, there's certainly some of those some of those views of prophecy are, are sort of good, ludicrous. Good, um, good food for thought there, though. Uh, considering, yeah. 
Yeah, there's, uh, there's certainly scripture that has to come to bear there with Isaiah 46. That's, uh, you know, it's just yeah, it, and it's just for me the the issue of of explaining one you can't contradict another scripture, and that's what maybe a certain theological bent, specifically and probably others does, where um, where you know you say well he he will bring it to pass, he's actively working. Okay, sure, I could see that. You know, uh, does he uh, violate his character in doing that? Well, no, of course he doesn't, you know, so how does he do that? You know, how does he bring up, bring to pass yeah. these things that, that entail, uh, sinners doing certain things? I don't know. You know, I mean, at a certain point I have to say, yeah. well, uh, I'm glad and my mind's not that big, you know? Well, it, yeah, it takes a lot of faith to see that God does yeah. bring these things all to pass. And yet he is still untarnished by the evil that is done by man in the, in the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, that takes a lot of faith to to acknowledge that and, and trust the Lord that somehow he's still good despite yes, right. bringing all of these things to pass. I just think we, we get into dicey territory when we read passages like Isaiah 46, uh, five through 11 and we go, well, that just can't be, that just can't be right. <laughs> um, but well, well, it certainly can because the Bible says that that's how it is. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, you know, we, sometimes we try to inject human logic into Mm -hmm. scripture by saying, well, it just can't be, it can't be that. Well, that's what we're doing. We're injecting human logic into scripture. The scripture says that's how it is. Um, So, so our logic has to bend to the statement of scripture more than, right. The opposite. More than just saying, well, it can't be, it can't be. Um, (laughs) So Um, anyway. Okay. Thank you for that feedback, uh, Omar. And um, we have another question on that, uh, on that feedback that we're going to save for another time. Uh, you oh, had a couple questions. Yeah, you had a couple questions there mm-hmm. that you wanted to ask off of our list. Yes. So these ones surround the topic of marriage. Um, and uh, interesting that these two questions kind of uh, came in similar times because they're kind of related. Uh, one is regarding the, I'm not sure which one to start with. Let me let me start with this one here. Uh, a man in in our church actually asked this. He said he had watched the movie Fireproof. Mm-hmm. Um, ha, have you 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 said you've seen that? Yeah, I'd say at least a couple um, times. Uh-huh. A couple times. Okay, mm-hmm. I may have seen it. Um, I just don't remember it. If I did see it, I have no recollection of it whatsoever. But he was telling me, and and he said he could be wrong too, and how he remembers it. But he says that there were some people, a couple or somehow, that were not Christian people. They were not saved, but they were married. And it's at a certain point they get saved in the story, and then by the end they're they're getting married again, or, or perhaps renewing vows or something. I I don't know. Hmm. He wasn't clear on it. Whether or not the the movie isn't the point of the, the, the question. <laughs> yeah, right. uh-huh. Um, that's kind of tangential to it. The question is that he asked me is if unsaved people who are married get saved, do they get married again? Uh, no. I, okay. That, that's the short version of, of how I am. <laughs> but uh, I was wanting to see if your answer would be similar to what I gave him. So um, what say you? <laughs> no. <laughs> You're going to make me squeeze it out of you, huh? Um, okay. Well, um to me, uh, marriage is something that is laid out in scripture and the, you know, the, if you will, the, the, 
the process or the the necessity, the reality of it. And it's not a Christian thing. It is a design of God for humanity thing. And so if you have been married in in some semblance according to the design of God, you are married in reality, not as a Christian or because of your Christian status, but simply as a human, you covenanted, uh, you know, um, and I, and I guess maybe somebody would say, well, technically, you know, this is before God and witnesses, but if you're not a Christian, it's not really before God. Well, it is, you, you may not really yeah. acknowledge him for who he is, but it is before God. Yeah. But if you've gone through this legal and, uh, uh, and I guess I would say legal and, um, biblical process of marriage, your, your regeneration really doesn't affect the status of that in, okay. in a way that you would have to renew that uh, upon. Okay. Well, I guess, I guess the more foundational question then is what constitutes a marriage? Mm -hmm. What makes a marriage a marriage? Okay. Well, from the very the earliest, what is it? Uh, Genesis, what, 126 or 28? I want to say something like that. But you have, uh, you know, a man leaving his father and his mother, cleaving to his wife, uh, then becoming two. one flesh, J chapter two, okay? And so we have, you know, the, the union of two people leaving one family, creating a family of their own, you know, and there is, there is a way, you can tell, I would say, by the New Testament that that is, if you will, legally constituted, whereby the public uh, knows the status so mm -hmm. when he says to the Samaritan woman, uh, yeah, you're right. Actually, you've been married five times and the woman or, and the man you're with now is not your husband. So there, there's some form of legal status. Uh, and of course, he wrote okay. in the law and, and, and as he elaborates that he permitted Moses uh, because of the hardness of their hearts okay. to have this bill of divorcement. But the point was, is that it was a legal standing, uh, even in okay. Israel, that there was a way to understand yourself socially as being married. It had to be a certain process. Right. Of course, it's a man and a woman. You know, it's a separation sure. to each other uh, singly. Sure. And anyway, go ahead. So you would say there has to be a legal component involved? Um, yes, yes, absolutely. Because um, now, now I think what you're maybe, maybe leading to is a social legal component. But just the fact that God ordains and then describes marriage to some degree means that it is a legal component because uh, the law is an expression of God. And if God's expressing himself, it is, this is the reality. This is the standard. This is how it's to, supposed to be done. And so, yeah, it's a legal okay. issue. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I guess maybe legal is in view here because, um, mm -hmm. you know, before there was a law in Israel, before there was even Israel, Right. There was marriage. Yes, yes absolutely. <laughs> right. right. Um, and I know many look to the instance in which um, Abraham's servant seeks a wife for Isaac. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and he goes and he finds Rebecca. Um, there, there was no legal process necessarily because there was no law there was a patriarchal society mm -hmm. not to say that there wasn't a public component and i think maybe that's where some of some of the confusion lies is legal versus public so like today there's you know marriage licenses the government is involved 
Well, mm-hmm. Th- mm-hmm. what did they do before government? Well, they had public involvement in a sense in certain instances, uh, you know, with the exception of, you know, like Adam and Eve, there were no witnesses other than God. <laughs> there was no public or legal component. Um, but you have, you know, there was dowry that was paid. There was uh, announcements that were made. There was scheduling of things that took place. Um, there seemed to be some sort of familial recognition uh, of marriage, and there was an exclusivity to the union mm-hmm. uh, of marriage as well. And there, there really wasn't a ceremony that took place with Isaac and Rebecca. So. When you look at it and you say, okay, well, then there doesn't need to be necessarily a legal component, simply a public component. Which And which by legal, you mean in a culture of their of their legal code. Is that what you mean? Right, right. Okay. Now okay. in our in our culture, we have a legal code regarding mm-hmm. marriage. Mm-hmm. And you know, we do have obligations to a degree to respect the laws of our land, um, <clears throat> biblically speaking. So, you know. There does have to be that. So that brings me to Justin's question. And he says here, um, he says, I haven't fully thought through this yet, but it's interesting. There are two Christians we know near the age of 80 that are widowed. They desire to get married, but are wondering if, quote, married in the sight of the Lord only, end quote, is not legally from the point of the state is acceptable before God. They are seeking companionship, and the desire to remarry in their state certainly is acceptable in Scripture. Is there a biblical requirement to have the marriage recognized by the state? Would the answer to this question change at all if the couple was 20 years old and approaching marriage for the first time? The New Testament speaks some about the relationship of married believers to the Mosaic Law in Romans 7, but I'm less clear about how we should handle the civil law. When it, while it is sinful in the sight of God, many unmarried couples do live together today, so a couple married in the sight of the Lord only would not be breaking any civil ordinance. <clears throat> I better stop thinking out loud here and let you ponder the question. Thanks for the continued work on the podcast. That's from Justin. Um <clears throat> Okay, so there, there's maybe a lot to unpack there, and we only have a few minutes left. Okay. Uh, but I'm thinking that you know is, there is a biblical ex- expectation that we have legal involvement in weddings, at least in the United States here today, and that's because we are to have a respect towards civil government. Um, and you know, there's nothing unbiblical about a marriage ceremony, though there doesn't necessarily seem to be a biblical requirement for a ceremony. Uh, Jesus attended a wedding ceremony himself, so he wasn't against the concept of them. Uh, I'm thinking of the one in Cana of Galilee. That's right. right. Um, but that doesn't mandate a ceremony. So no, a ceremony is not required. And and while weddings existed, marriage existed before legal requirements for marriage ex- existed, I think the Lord would want us to at least in some regard respect the civil ordinances concerning marriage. So perhaps you could make the biblical case that, you know, you could get some witnesses together and, and, you know, have a, a short wedding and you could be declared married in the sight of God and so on and not get the state involved. I, I think God, you know, would honor a, a marriage like that. But I think in our culture, since we have legal requirements for it, um, or statutes, I should say, uh, it, that should be respected. Yeah. I mean, I guess my, my question is the, the only, 
why would you why would you do that? Uh, and the only reason I can think of, and I and I don't mean to necessarily impugn their motives, but the only reason I can think that you would want to do it um, before God, quote unquote, and not before the law is to maintain certain financial benefits. Um, sometimes people don't get married in certain situations because, say, when they get married, like when a widow, uh, when a widow gets married, she loses the benefits she had from her husband's social security because now she's she's married. Um, uh -huh. You know, something like that. Uh, so they can they can you know live together, still have you know kind of a better financial standing, and still feel yeah. like they're married. And I. And I would say, ooh, uh, you know, that would kind of make me, because basically, how do you know? What's the difference between cohabitation and marriage? Right. If, 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 well, we can live together, all of a sudden, if we say, well, you know, it's okay if it's just before God, what does that mean? Yeah. That before God, I what? I, I, I vowed to the other person or I, you know, what was the part of that? I mean, what, what is the importance of witnesses, if you will? in the marriage um to yeah. say we have well, witnessed they're, your they're witnesses of the vows uh and the vows that make yeah. a marriage a marriage involve like i mentioned earlier exclusivity and i would say as, as well as permanence right whereas cohabitation doesn't really have the expectation of always having exclusivity and right. permanence people who cohabit are in a sense keeping uh, an ace in the back pocket to say, well, if, if I get tired of this relationship, then I just move out. Mm -hmm. um, whereas marriage says, I vow before God and before witnesses that I'm yours and yours alone for life. Um, yeah. Yes. I yeah. think you bring up an interesting point that, okay, some cultures don't uh, per se have the code. And yet I really think they do maybe not in the same way that ours is structured, uh, you know, for, I'm, I'm for sake of you know hypothetical, though I don't think it's entirely really hypothetical, you go to some Indian tribe, you know, some some place in the jungle, they still have a they still have a knowledge. You don't mess with my woman, you know. Right. That's my woman. She is my right. wife. Well, what you know these are these are pagan people, or they, these are people that godless people, and yet they still have this concept of marriage and, like you say, exclusivity yeah. and if you want to call it ownership, whatever. Um, so there's still an understanding that this person's my wife. And I guess to, so somebody's saying, well, in America though, can I bypass the legal system and just, and just cohabit, but before the Lord be married. And I guess I, I'm more, a little bit more perplexed, but just saying, why, what, what, what are we avoiding? What's so either a hard or distasteful about yeah. uh, the, the government acknowledging that I don't see anything wrong with that. Um, Unless there's, it's just a matter of inconvenience for them. I don't know. But like, what do you do in some cultures where you really can't get married unless it's done by a certain religious organization? Um, and I'm, I believe there are still countries in the world that do this where mm. uh, marriage is only recognized by the Catholic Church or some other religious group. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. if Christians in that place want to get married, they would have to do it in a Catholic church by a Catholic priest and so on. Um, well, what do you do in a society like that? Um, you can't have the legal requirements for marriage. Well, that's, be, that's, that's fine because marriage goes beyond the legal system. It is before God uh, that marriage takes place. Right. When the legal system contradicts the scripture yeah. and inhibits the actual design of God, well then, yeah, it, it's to be bypassed. But um, 
or or to be resisted. So that's interesting. I don't. I, I I'm a, I'm just like a little bit reticent to totally land on that one, though it does kind of seem mm-hmm. like well, if yeah. you know, outside of the American legal system system i and i almost even wonder like uh we need to put in a little uh yeah. disclaimer here this is not uh, official legal advice blah blah blah, blah. we're not right because uh, in some ways it's actually um there actually is a uh, provision where it is um what am i trying to say it's unlawful it's illegal to marry someone i think without the right credentialing um so uh, that depends um okay yeah so so have you heard of common law marriage Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm not certain that all of our states in this union uh, permit that. I'd have to look into that. Don't don't take anything I'm saying here as you know gospel. But uh, common law marriage is the idea that folks who have basically just moved in together, declared themselves married, and they've been married. They call themselves husband and wife. They mm-hmm. they live as if they're husband and wife, and so on. That eventually their marriage is simply just After recognized. After a certain period of time, yes. Well, and, and I remember hearing somewhere a while ago that it was like seven years, That's but then I, I heard that that was a myth, uh, oh. <laughs> that there's really nothing in the books anywhere in our country that states anything about seven years. Okay. Um, but, you know, the, the idea of common law marriage, I think, started in England. Um, there were places where villages were so far out uh, in old England <laughs> where they couldn't get, uh, you know, clergy there to marry people or didn't have any access to that uh, because of travel being difficult in the olden days. So in smaller villages, folks just got married. They just declared themselves married um, in the sight of the public. Um, but there was still an expectation of exclusivity to each other and permanence. That's what mm-hmm. made the yeah. marriage the marriage was that before God, they recognized this is a permanent union and we are exclusive to each other. Uh, that's what makes it different than cohabiting amongst other things. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I'm just sort of, as you're, uh, as you're talking, I'm scanning this article, but yeah, that's similar what you're saying, you know, that, that obviously the intent is the same as what we would say is traditional marriage. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, listeners, anyway. give us your feedback on uh, any insights you might have there, an angle that maybe we're not seeing, or another part to the uh, discussion that would be helpful. We would appreciate that. It's Reason Together yeah. Podcast at Gmail dot com. Yeah, and we're not claiming to be exclusive authorities here on this no. subject. <laughs> we're, we're literally just reasoning together with right. what we do know. Um, there could be things that we're missing here or not thinking through on this particular subject. Uh, so if you do have thoughts, uh, do like Daniel said, reason together podcast at gmail.com. There you go. Well, it's uh, it's time to bid you adieu. Thank you again for joining the conversation. And again, give us uh, your feedback patrons. Thank you so much for your support. We are encouraging balance, developing perspective and connecting faith to practice. This is reason together. Mm-hmm.